Good morning. I'm Corolla, if you don't know me, but I think everyone does. Um, I have the pleasure of bringing us the word this morning. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles <laughs> and wearing of the gold jewelry or fine clothes. What a day! Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Sorry, I wasn't really trying to fiddle with the microphone to get your attention, but uh, now I've got it. Let me say from a preacher's point of view, uh, coming to difficult passages in the Bible is just wonderful uh, because there's no need to get your attention at all. Uh, It's already... Riveted, and we've already heard that even as we've uh, uh, heard the Bible read and uh, we've heard the kids talk, we know we come to a fairly uh, pointy bit of the Bible that raises lots of questions for our our culture and our thinking. So, from my point of view, it's a wonderful opportunity to get into the Bible together. So, let me pray that we'll be able to do it well. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the Scripture is written for our benefit. And Father, we ask that as we consider it together today, uh, you'll uh, be with us, that you'll you'll help us to understand what you've written here and that uh, we'll we'll take the heart to mind, we'll think about it for our practices as your people, the way in which we operate in your world. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In 1955, there was a magazine in the United States called The Housekeeping Monthly and they published an article. So 1955, Housekeeping Monthly and the article was The Good Wife's Guide, right? The Good Wife's Guide. And uh, it had lots of suggestions for wives in the 1950s in America to keep in mind when their husbands were coming home from work, right? Things like this. Be a little gay and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift and one of your duties is to provide it, okay? Or this one, listen to him. You may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not that time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours, okay? Or this one, make the evening his. Never complain. If he comes home late or goes out to dinner or some other place of entertainment without you, instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his very real need to be at home and relax. And actually, the article is full of gems. 
just like uh, that one. And when you read that, you immediately think, I have entered into another world, another era, another culture, which is so foreign from the egalitarian 21st century context in which we find ourselves here in Adelaide. And maybe you feel exactly that way when we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And you think, whoa, that is just so far away from where I live. And maybe it evokes lots of feelings for you. Yeah, it's, you may feel like it's demeaning or misogynistic or repressive or primitive or patronising or condescending. And maybe it cuts across everything you know and feel about human dignity. Yeah, the equality of human beings, irrespective of race or gender. And maybe actually at this point, you might even be thinking if the Bible advocates this sort of thinking, then it's about as instructive in value as the housekeeping monthly. Maybe that's the way in which you feel. So, let me first of all talk to you about what I think this is not saying. Right? What it's not saying. It definitely is not saying men are superior beings or more intelligent or got more gifts than women. Nor is it saying that men are more important to God. If we just go a bit further down in the passage to verse 7, it says women and men really are co-heirs of the gracious gift of God. Right? There's an equality that is being built in in terms of God's sight. Nor is this saying husbands crush your wives or husbands control your wives. In fact, these verses actually speak against any disrespect or abuse of women and they speak against it in the strongest possible way. And we'll see that as we turn to it in just a moment. When you read the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, you see that Jesus was quite an extraordinary trailblazer. He was a trailblazer in the way in which he respected and advocated for women in all sorts of different contexts. However, I do want to say that these instructions around submission, they are not socially or just socially or culturally conditioned. Uh, They weren't just relevant in the first century and have, have no relevance for us now at all. And that becomes clear even in the context of the passage that we read. It's why before when Amanda said, oh, I thought we are doing verses 11 and 12 and 3, 1 to 7. And you'll, you'll know that this is a section with illustrations. And when you look at the context, submission runs through the whole section. That is, there's submission of people in relation to governing authorities. There's submission of slaves to master. Uh, we read about in the end of chapter 2, Jesus' own submission to the will of his heavenly Father and to the injustice of human authority. Submission runs through it time and time and time again. Also, when it comes to this issue of marriage, husbands and wives, elsewhere in the New Testament, it uses the same sort of categories uh, in teaching about marriage. You can go to Ephesians 5, 
or Colossians 3 or 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is not an isolated series of instructions around marriage. However, 1 Peter 3 is not primarily about marriage. Um, We need to recognise that in order to read this well. Marriage is an illustration of another point. Marriage is an illustration here. So, what is the main point? So, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, that Amanda read for us, followers of Jesus are called by God to serve him in the world, and they are to live, verse 12, such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then that principle is applied to three situations, Christians with unbelieving ruling authorities, uh, Christian slaves and their unbelieving masters, and now Christian wives and their unbelieving husbands. Although later in the, 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 the chapter it also talks about um, believing husbands with unbelieving wives. It uh, refers back to that as well. So we come back to 3 verse 1 with that in mind. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. That's the focused illustration. The Roman Empire of the first century, uh, culturally it was the norm for wives to adopt the religion of their husbands. That was the way in which things worked themselves out. But here we have wives who have not done this. And so let me say the first up thing, these are gutsy women. We are talking about impressive women who are running against a cultural context by choosing to believe in Christ, even if their husbands don't. And I reckon that would have been incredibly threatening It's always unsettling uh, in families uh, and relationships when one person becomes a Christian in a context where other people aren't. I remember when I I became a Christian, I was 20 years old, I was at university, and I reckon about a month, six weeks later, my parents sat me down and they said, we are really worried about you. You've gone all sort of religious and crazy on us. And I remember one comment they made. They said... You don't even go out with your friends and get drunk anymore. Now, I was thinking, I would have thought that was probably a good thing, you know, rather than, but, but you get the point, don't you? That my change in behaviour had really rattled them and they were feeling totally unsettled. But it's the same here. What we have is a married woman who converted to Christianity could be seen as a really destabilising force in her household and even disrespectful to her husband because she hasn't followed the religion of the family. Quite challenging. So, how does a wife in that sort of situation, how does she commend Jesus to her unbelieving husband? Now, we're talking about this illustration, wives with unbelieving husbands, But can I say the principles here I think apply very helpfully in any context where you have a relationship with an unbeliever. Okay, sort of second layer out, but nonetheless really, really helpful. 
So, what we see all throughout this section is the impact of doing good, the impact of a godly life on unbelievers around us. And the starting point in this section is the example of Jesus. If you go back to the passage, uh, the instructions to husbands and wives, they start off with the same words. Can you see it there? Verse 1, wives in the same way. Verse 7, husbands in the same way. In the same way as... Same way as... Well, it's the same way as Jesus. We go back to chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And there Jesus is the one for us to follow. He submitted to his heavenly Father's will by suffering, by being unjustly killed on a cross for our sins. Here's an interesting... Just take you aside for one moment... Is Jesus equal with his father or less than his father? Equal with his father? Less than his father. I think equal, right? But given that he is equal, does he lose that equality or does he lose his dignity by submitting to his father's will? And No, he doesn't. No loss of equality or dignity or status in any way even though he does submit. And I want to say it's the same with husbands and wives. There is no loss of identity or value or standing when wives submit to God and serve their spouse, even at their own personal cost. And let me say it again the other way around. There is no loss of value or dignity or identity when husbands serve their wives even at their own cost. Okay? No loss. Notice also the emphasis on actions over words. Chapter 3, verse 1. So speaking about unbelieving husbands, it says, if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. So let me ask you another question. Can a husband or anyone become a Christian by the example of somebody else? Because we know by definition that's impossible. No one gets converted by my behaviour. Right? That, that just doesn't work. You can only become a believer by believing and trusting in the promises of God, by trusting in his word. Chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, if a husband does not believe the word, literally it's saying, disobeys the word. It's helpful just to note that, because the context here is of a husband who has rejected the gospel, rejected the truth about Jesus, and wives at this point are encouraged to have less talk and more action in a smart way to help their husbands rethink the gospel. That's what's going on here. Now, can I again say that's good advice in any close relationship? Uh, Where someone's heard the gospel and backed away from it, uh, it can be really smart to let your behaviour speak into that situation so you then have opportunity to speak words into the situation. So, what does submission look like here? 
because uh, that's the tricky word, I reckon, submission. You know, what, what are we talking about? Can I say we really need to be very careful about not filling uh, this word with their own ideas or preferences or culture? When we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and that talks about submission, I want to suggest to you that this has more in common with feminism than patriarchalism. Uh, Now, that might seem a radical thing for a Christian preacher to say in our context, but I want to say, actually, I think this has more in common with feminism than patriarchal ideas. Feminists uh, have, over a number of decades, I think, rightly spoken against the way women are objectified or commodified, you know, valued because of their bodies or their looks or their externals. And the Bible lines up with that. The Bible says it's actually totally wrong and inappropriate to treat women or anyone like a lump of meat. Notice what God values. Verses 2 to 4. The contrast inner beauty and character with external looks. You see, the world values external looks and power and wealth. What does God value? Verse 4. The inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And then in verse 5, it advocates role models in the Old Testament who put their hope in God, not men. That's, that's what we talked about. We're talking about character that lasts for eternity as opposed to bodies and looks that are just skin deep and will fade. But what's this gentle and quiet spirit that's spoken of in verse 4. Uh, we're talking about women who are seen and not heard, or maybe women who are not seen or heard. Now, given that uh, what we've heard in this section is a slamming of the elevation of external beauty over internal, it, it would be really strange, I think, if what we thought this was teaching was maintain an external veneer of godliness and gentleness when you're out in public. Now, do you understand that has a lot in common with Islam and nothing to do with Christianity? That would be a really weird interpretation. When it talks about gentle and quiet spirit, literally this is talking about the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. You see, the focus here is not on external grooming, hair, clothes, but to actually groom your heart. So in this situation, unbelieving husbands, they may behave badly, but believing wives have a strength of character that means they serve their undeserving husbands in the same way that Christ served them by dying on a cross when they didn't deserve it. 
Do you hear, hear what we're being encouraged to do here? In the face of mistreatment or opposition or rejection, grace, 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 grace. That's what's being spoken about here. And what's the husband called upon to do? Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, that is like Jesus, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, when you read that, you think, weaker partner? Okay, what are we talking about here? Uh, some have said it might be the legal position of women in the first century, uh, which was less than men. It's a possibility. However, I think it's more likely a comment about physical vulnerability. That's what I think is more likely. We know the stats on domestic violence in our own context. It's perpetrated not, not exclusively, but dominantly by men. And men are, on average, stronger than women. I think here husbands are being told not to use their physicality to manipulate or coerce their wives in order to achieve what they want. I reckon that's what's going on here. Now, at this point, can I just say uh, there is no place for domestic abuse or violence in any marriage, yet alone Christian marriage. God abhors it. Notice how seriously God takes it here. Now look at verse 7. If a husband conducts himself in this way, abusively towards his wife, he will destroy his relationship with his wife. I mean, that's obvious. But he will also destroy his relationship with God. Verse 7. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. God does not listen to a man who abuses his wife. Husbands, God calls you to respect and honour and love your wives. So what if um, someone here or someone you know is in an abusive relationship? I want to take us back to chapter 2, verse 16. There it says, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. As a church community, uh, let me say, I think we should expose domestic violence and abuse. We should not cover it up. Uh, If that's your situation or the situation of someone you know, and if you're in our church sort of context, then you should speak to the pastor, one of the elders, uh, a Bible study leader that you trust, a trusted woman you know so that you can get support. And I think that's good advice to give someone else that you know who might be in this situation. Submission does not mean allowing someone to sin against you in this way. And often I think 
there's a need for people to think about separation for a period of time so there can be repentance, uh, counselling, support and to reconstruct a relationship on the right sort of basis. That's a serious matter. Let me just take a couple of moments just to um, try and apply some of this. We've worked through the text. Let me just talk a little bit about uh, some implications. So firstly, a word for the marrieds. Uh, when you hit 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and given our culture, I think it's really hard not to just dismiss these verses or to skim over them. Uh, you know, wives, submit. It is just a small part of what the Bible teaches about marriage. Uh, God's intention is that men and women in marriage form a partnership where there is deep love and respect and affection uh, for one another. So the big idea that God has for marriage is unity and harmony. So what I'm going to do is is make a comment and a suggestion. All right? Comment and a suggestion. Firstly, the comment. I think sometimes Christians communicate that submission equals husbands making decisions in marriage and wives complying. How can I say that that is not the way a healthy marriage works? Sue and I have been married for over 40 years, right? And there are lots of decisions we make in our marriage without any reference to each other at all. Now, that's not because we are fiercely independent, but it's because actually after 40 years we've got a fair idea of what we think about a stack of things. And we don't need to talk about things, especially if they're not particularly significant things. We just get on with it. And we do make decisions with high level of alignment and trust and confidence in one another. However, there are some decisions that we agonise over and that we talk about, that we pray about, that we discuss, that we debate. Now, Sue is a godly, wise, smart mature woman. And I would be a moron if I didn't pay attention to what she had to say in relation to important things that we're trying to work through together. Now, I'm not trying to say my marriage is a a paradigm. Uh, Everyone is different. But what I do want to say is that marriage will be fundamentally marked by healthy partnership. That's the way it'll work. That's the comment. Let me make a a suggestion. Marriage involves respect and love. And I I have embedded in my brain, um, catching up with a couple a few years back now, where I sat down with them, they had some significant marriage issues. I remember the wife uh, saying, making this comment. She said, I don't think he cherishes me. I don't think he cherishes me. And that really uh, struck me. The old marriage service actually uh, asked husbands to love and cherish their wives. And to cherish just means to hold an extraordinarily high esteem. It's another way of talking about love. 
So here's my suggestion to you husbands here, uh, not, not to turn and ask this straight away, but at some stage when you have a quiet moment, I want you to ask your wife, do you feel like I cherish you? Do you feel like I cherish you? Now I'm saying to husbands, you ask that question. Right? Do you feel like I cherish you? If I can make a suggestion to the wives here, uh, ask your husbands, do you feel like I respect you? Do you feel like I respect you? So I want you to have a go at that later on. Right? Take, take a moment at some stage. Do you feel cherished by me? Do you feel respected by me? Let me have a, uh, a quick word to those of us who are single. Uh, some of us are single and will continue as single. Some of us are single, will get married in due course. Uh, can I say that this part of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, it's not encouraging Christians to marry unbelievers. The context, I think, fairly clearly is talking about someone who is converted in marriage and is trying to make that, that work. The most important thing uh, when you're thinking about getting married if you're a believer, is that you marry a believer. Uh, speak to those who are in a situation where they're married to unbelievers and they will tell you how hard it is to be married to someone when at the core level of your life you don't share the most important thing. Right? It really is, is critical. However, can I also say that if you're in that situation then as a community we want to support you as you work out how to live faithfully in that relationship. That, that's our goal. If you're planning on getting married, then this part of the Bible has an enormous amount to say to us about what to look for in a marriage partner. It talks about inner beauty and character and godliness over skin-deep sort of values. And I think that applies for both men and women and even more so in our culture than ever before. It is incredibly shallow to value looks over godliness. Now, I'm not saying looks are irrelevant. I'm not encouraging people not to brush their hair or their teeth and to look as ugly as you possibly can. Right? That, that's not what this part of the Bible is teaching either. But the thing to treasure most in a partner is that they fear the Lord. And as a church, uh, we're not going to commodify men or women on that basis. That is, we'll treat people with respect and love, uh, not value them because of the way they look. And then finally, let me talk about the fact that this is a word, I think, for... Uh, people in any relationship with unbelievers. It talks about marriage, but, but it illustrates the bigger point. How do we commend the gospel to those who don't yet believe? Uh, I said earlier, when I became a Christian when I was about 20 years of age. I was living at home with my parents at the time. They were supporting me through university. And when I got converted, I went home and explained to them that they'd gotten the main purpose of their life wrong for 55 years. Right? Now, they responded warmly to this sage advice from their 20-year-old son uh, that they were still supporting through university. 
Not, you know, I wish what I'd done is used less words, made more beds, done more dishes, done more mowing of lawns. Uh, that I think would have been probably much more helpful. Now, they recovered from my early preaching efforts and they did observe changes in my life and they did warm to the gospel. But you get the point, don't you? Now, you might be here today and maybe you've got children who've wandered away from the Lord. You know, they know you believe, but every time you raise the subject, they change it. I want to encourage you to maintain your gospel integrity, but do keep loving your kids as well as you possibly can and keep praying that God will bring about change in their hearts. Your kids may not believe, but what you want them to be able to say is that they could have never wanted for more loving parents. But, you know, I think it's the same in any long-standing friendships. Remember at the uh, wedding reception of one of our our kids and we had some non-Christian friends who were sitting on a table with some people from church. And these non-Christian friends were put back by our Christian friends on the table. Uh, When they were at the table, they mentioned to these church-going friends that they just loved our family and loved spending time with our family. There were such good people with such wonderful values. And then our church friends said, you you know what makes them tick, don't you? They said that they actually understand the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God and that's had a profound impact on their lives and caused them to want to live differently. Now we went on the table, we didn't hear the conversation, but our friends were able to talk about the thing that had changed our lives. Now, you, you may not have had anyone come up to you lately and say, I can see by the impressive way you live, you must be a Christian. Tell me too how I may become one. You know, Maybe that wasn't what happened when you asked that question we were talking about earlier. We do know, don't we, that only God by his word and spirit can transform lives and hearts. But I want to encourage you as we get to the end of these three weeks that we don't underestimate the power of godly living to impact and to provoke and to cause questions to come. Let me finish by just reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 again. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, even in tough passages like the one we look at today, uh, we see the glory of the gospel shining through, which is really the outstanding nature of your character and grace towards us in your Son. And Father, we pray that we'll take that gospel to heart, we'll keep letting it shape our lives, our relationships, how we operate in marriage and families, at work and neighbourhoods, wherever we find ourselves, that you'll help us to keep being those sort of uh, gospel people with integrity 
But in the end looks to the grandstand of only one, uh, you, the one who we seek to honour and love and obey, even when we're in conflicted and troubled spaces. And Father, we do ask that you'll help us to live, live lives that give you glory and honour, even in those spaces, that people might ask questions, uh, be curious to know what makes us tick and why we respond so differently. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.